we have a series we'd like to share with you from our friends at Lemonada Media and KSL. It's called The Letter. All you hear in the news are these graphic details of crime, but what comes after that? In this new podcast, journalist Amy Donaldson explores how lives can be remade and restored through the story of one survivor as she forges a new path forward after receiving a life-changing piece of correspondence. The letter is true crime upside down. You're about to hear the first episode of The Letter. After you listen, search for The Letter wherever you get your podcasts to hear the second episode. New episodes every Tuesday. Before we get started, a warning to listeners. This podcast includes descriptions of gun violence and associated trauma. Please take care when listening. Sai Snar builds her Monday mornings around this phone call. She's so excited when she sees the caller ID, she nearly drops the phone. George? Hi, George. How are you? I'm good. It's so good to hear from you. I've wondered, I've been wondering if you got your vaccine yet. She leans back against the couch in the same living room where her life unraveled 25 years ago. Hey, I sent you a letter. You should be getting it any day. On the wall behind her are four large black and white portraits that freeze her children in time as teenagers in the 90s. It was a time when Sai couldn't imagine the painful turn their lives were about to take. To understand why that Monday morning phone call is so significant, we have to go back to the day that Sai Snar's world fell apart. It was in that same house in a quiet Salt Lake City neighborhood. I came running in the house. I was late and I had somewhere to go. It was August 28, 1996. For Sai and her close-knit family, it was a day just like every other day. And I'd been gone all day and came through the back door and I noticed my kitchen was spotless. And I had not left it that way. And Zach was standing right there and I said, who cleaned my kitchen? And he said, I did it for you, Mama. And I said, thanks, Zach. You know, that was Zach. It was one of those moments that probably wouldn't stand out, except for what came after it. The thing I do think a lot is why didn't I stop and say, Zach, if I told you today you're the greatest? You know, I said thank you. At least I noticed and I'm glad, but why didn't I stop and hug him? That was the last time I ever saw him. Instead of just hurry, hurry, I got to be here, got to be there, you know? Because you just don't realize that's the last time you're going to see him. That's why you tell people you love them every day. This story began 25 years ago with a crime that shocked a community. But it's really about what happened after the violence. It's about how those involved rebuild their lives from the wreckage. As unlikely as it seems, it's a story about healing and hope and something no one saw coming, the chance for redemption. From KSL Podcasts, I'm Amy Donaldson, and this is The Letter. Episode 1, Every Parent's Nightmare.
That morning, actually, that morning he was, he got up and uh, he was dressed ready to go to work. Ron Snar stands about six foot three with tan skin and calloused hands from decades of working long, hard days as the owner of a landscaping business. In the summer of 1996, Zach worked alongside him. I get up and I go out and stretch and yawn, look out the window, see what the, you know, see if it's raining or anything. And he's sitting there on the couch. And he says, Dad, where you been? I've been waiting for you. He's sitting there all dressed, ready to go. I said, Zach, I'll be right out. Ron laughs easily and often, a lot of times at his own jokes. But laughter is also his defense mechanism. He uses it to ease tension or to mask pain, like now, when he talks about the last morning that he shared with his son. But that's just the type of guy he was, you know. That's that's what happened the morning he was gone. He says, "I've been waiting for you." And I think, I think he still is. In that house nestled in the foothills of the Wasatch Mountains, the Snars raised four children. All four still lived at home that summer. Trent was twenty-one, Sydney nineteen, Zach eighteen, and Levi was fifteen. All of the children were close, but Sid and Zach, separated by just 18 months, they enjoyed a special middle-child relationship. My other brothers were pretty quiet, but Zach was just this outgoing social creature, and so we were each other's sidekick. I don't have any memories of my childhood without Zach there. We were so close. You know, we were siblings, but more than anything, we were friends. I remember he was like, man, what would mom do without us? Like, who would make her laugh? And, uh, and I was like, oh, I know. Because we, we considered ourselves the funny ones of yeah. the family. I remember Zach, Zach sitting in the front room. I, I can close my eyes and see this like I'm watching a movie, and I can feel it. Uh, I remember him playing the guitar, and he was self-taught. He... he taught himself how to play Pink Floyd and Eric Clapton and Guns N' Roses and he would just sit and pick away at his guitar and I'd always try to sing along like I'd just join in and if I heard him in the other room I'd come running in to to sing and it would just drive him so crazy and we would just you know we were always just laughing like it was it was fun Sid's last conversation with Zach was a phone call I had ridden my bike to work that day, and I had fallen off my bike at a red light. And so I told him about that because it was funny and awkward, and we just laughed together. Zach had called her at the bakery where she was working, looking for the keys to his Bronco. He was going to pick up his friend Yvette for a date that night. And that night when I was riding my bike home from work, he actually drove past me on his way to go pick up Yvette. All of a sudden, I just heard this honking, crazy honking, and I looked up, and Zach was driving opposite of me, and he had his body hanging out the front window of the car, and he was just laying on the horn, and he had his fist up in the air like this victory, you know, and he was just like, you know, as he drove by, and I remember just going, you're a dork. And then he just kept going, and I shook my head and, like, you know, rolled my eyes and just kept going home but that was the last time I saw him. 
what happened that night after the break. Sai says her son loved animals. He might have been a veterinarian. But he was also passionate about music and photography. She's not sure what he might have been if he'd had the chance to chase his dreams. What she does know is that he made the most of the life that he had, and he went out of his way to be friendly to everyone. Even um, some of our older neighbors said he was the only kid in the neighborhood who would ever stop and talk to him. He'd see him outside and he'd stop and talk to him. How are you doing? And he'd help him in with their garbage or out with the garbage. You know, that was just Zach. He was just an amazing young man. He was responsible, a rule follower with empathy for everyone. Her son, Sai says, believed in doing the right thing, even if it didn't seem to matter. There was no gray area for Zach. Now, he would signal in a parking lot. I mean, that's how careful he was. You know, he just did everything right and good. And, you know, he never deviated. For Zach Snar, the summer of 1996 was a bridge between his happy childhood and an adult life that was just coming into focus. He had a date that night with Yvette Rodier, and they had been friends since junior high and just good friends, really good friends, and uh, hung out but had never really dated. But he was going to, I think, teach her how to take pictures. We're all home except Zach, and the, the two boys were downstairs, and there's two bedrooms upstairs. She was in one, and Cy and I are in the other. We'd all gone to bed, and about 1.15 in the morning, the doorbell rang, and I really thought, because there was this group of girls from Ogden who he hung out with, and they were doorbell ditching him again. <laughs> you know, they, they did that back and forth, and so I didn't, I didn't get up. I just thought, well, there's those Ogden girls again, you know, the Ogden ladies, he called them. I was reading in bed. The doorbell rang, and then there was knocking, and I went to the door, and we had a glass front door. I started opening the door, and then I just kind of got a little uncomfortable, like, wait, it's late, what's going on? And so I called through the glass, I said, can I help you? And they said, is your mom and dad there? And I said, uh, yeah. And, and then one of them pulled out their badge and said, I'm with the police department. And I just remember thinking, oh my gosh, our house has been graffitied. And that was like my thought. That was the worst thing at that moment that it possibly could have been. So I opened the door and I went into my parents' room and I stuck my head in and I said, Mom and Dad, there's some policemen here to see you. She comes in and says, the police are at the front door. There's two detectives that want to talk to you. And I looked at my husband and I said, what do they want? Go see what they want. We get up and Sai immediately says, Zach's the only one that's not home. And I said, oh, he's, he's with a vet. He's fine. But they're, they want to talk to you. I think I knew at that instant it, it had to do with Zach. And so my parents came out and they were both just pale. We knew it wasn't going to be good. I said, what's happened to my son? Because I just, I knew. And they said, well, will you sit down? <laughs> and they they had my parents sit down, and I was standing in the doorway. And they introduced themselves, and there was two policemen and 
uh, chaplain there. And they said uh, something like, your son Zachary was involved in a shooting tonight. And I just thought, you've got the wrong kid. <laughs> you know, Zach would never be involved in something like that. And I remember my dad's voice just cracked and he said, well, is he okay? They said he had been shot and he, he hadn't made it. My mom just collapsed across my dad's lap and my dad laid over her and they were both just instantly crying and, and like wailing. And uh, I, I just remember standing there just holding on to the door frame into the living room. We told our daughter to go down and get her brothers. And I ran downstairs into the basement and turned on my brother Levi's light and just started screaming, Zach's dead, Zach's dead, get up, get up. And he was like, what, what? And from there I ran into Trent's room and he was my older brother and flipped the light on and he was already sitting up in bed and I remember he was just pure white, just like the blood had just dropped out of his face and I just screamed, get up, and then ran out of the room. I'll never forget their faces when they come upstairs. They were just white and just in shock, you know? And that's how I told my brothers because I I just didn't... I regret that. You know, I, I feel bad that that's how I, I... I think I was just in such shock, though, because it was. It was just so shocking. Who would hurt him? The first thing they said, practically, was what gang was he affiliated with? Why are you asking us this? That's very, very annoying. You know, I was kind of pissed. Like, you know, Zach's the problem. <laughs> you know, never been a problem in his his whole life. We're denying it all. I says, you know, you got, you got the wrong guy. He's he's not no gang. He's never been anywhere. You know, the only thing he's been is a model child. And they were saying. Did she have a jealous boyfriend, or has he been fighting with anybody? And we're just like, no, no, no. My parents were so quietly just saying no, no, and I remember I just like screamed out, no, everybody loved Zach. And it was like just surreal to me because I just kept thinking, that didn't happen, you know, wake up, this has to be a dream, wake up. I mean, it, but I just I just kept looking at him, and, and they said, you know, that... The girl he was with had been shot, but she was at the hospital, and I'm just like, this cannot be happening. And and they just went on and on. And fine. I just, I said, wait a minute. Are you telling me my son's dead? You know, and they just kind of looked at me like, this woman's not getting it. And I wasn't. I mean, it just could not be real to me, you know? Just could not have happened to, to him. As soon as Sai learned Yvette was at the hospital, she left to sit with her family. Ron walked the neighborhood and talked with friends and family. Zach's siblings turned to each other for comfort. We cried. We cried and, and screamed and hugged. A lot of friends and family started coming in and they came to our house all through the night. At some point, 
somebody gave me a sleeping pill. I remember opening my eyes, and the sun was coming in through the window, and it was silent. And I just remember thinking, oh my gosh, that was, that was the worst dream. I can't believe I dreamt that. And I just remember thinking, thank God, that was a nightmare. And I remember getting out of bed and walking out into my house, and it was full of people. And it was just silent, and everyone was crying, and everyone was talking in hushed tones. And I remember just the realization that this happened. How could this have happened? And then from there, it was just a whole new nightmare. After the break, the Snars learn more details about Zach's last night. A couple of days after Zach's murder, the Snars visited Yvette at the hospital. I, it was awful seeing her lay there, and her face was so swollen, and I was so sad for her. She just looked so small and fragile, and I just, I just wept for her. You know, I remember I had to kneel down at the foot of her bed because I couldn't stand. I had to just kneel down. Just, just because I was, what's the word, devastated. It was devastating. Yvette offered the Snars precious details of Zach's last night. I felt like I needed to know what had happened. Zach took Yvette out to dinner, where they shared their post-high school hopes. They traded stories about summer jobs and preparing for college. Both planned to attend the University of Utah in about a week. And Zach, a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, talked about the mission he hoped to serve for his church, even though it was still a year away. After dinner, Zach had a surprise for Yvette. They drove up to Little Dell, a reservoir in a nearby canyon. It was a 20-minute drive from the restaurant in Salt Lake City to the small reservoir that is a favorite of fishermen. He hadn't told her where they were going or what they were doing, But when they got there, Yvette found out she was going to get a photography lesson. Zach planned to teach her how to take pictures of the rising full moon reflected on the water. He eased his Bronco into the dirt parking lot. The moon was already rising. They walked down an asphalt path that led to the water. They spread a blanket on the ground, and Zach gave Yvette a jacket he'd brought to protect her from the chill of the canyon winds. He was just setting up the tripod when a stranger approached them. The man, who looked about their age, asked a question about where the road went. They told him they didn't know. Just as they turned away, the man pulled out a gun and began shooting at them. Zach and Yvette fell to the ground next to each other. Yvette screamed as the man emptied the gun into their bodies. Then the man reloaded his gun and continued shooting as he walked toward them. The first bullet that hit Zach likely killed him. Yvette, shot multiple times, somehow survived. 
we'll hear from Yvette in the next episode. But for now, we'll stay with the Snars and experience that night as they did. Laying in a hospital bed, still trying to comprehend why they'd been attacked, Yvette provided pieces to a devastating puzzle for the Snars. Yvette told Sai that they had eaten calzones at Salt Lake Pizza and Pasta. She told her where they sat and what they'd discussed. I don't know why it mattered, but I never would have known. I never would have known where they ate or... And I had taken him to lunch there a few days before, Zach and I, just the two of us. And he liked it, and that, I think that's why he took her there. But I was glad to know that. He had been talking about me to her because I had made this quilt out of old Levi's, and he had taken it up there to sit on while they set up the tripod and take pictures. And he told her I'd made that, and that, that meant so much to me, you know? The fact that he'd take the time to tell her, my mama made, he always called me mama, I love that, Yeah. made this quilt. And just that it meant something to him meant a lot to me. Some people may never care, but he did. Mm. He was so good. I sound like a mother. I am <laughs> a proud mother. Yeah. I've always been very proud to be Zach Snar's mother. Ron was unmoored without his son's innate goodness to guide him. Zach was my child that would correct me. When I was in the wrong, he would, I'd feel a tap on my shoulder. <laughs> he remembers a church trip to a water park where Zach kept him in line. I'm down there and being my usual self, demanding this and that. I go up to the girl and, and said, I need a, a tube and a life jacket. And I forget what else. I named about three things. And I feel the tap on my shoulder <laughs> and the whole ward sitting there watching this, you know, and he says, Dad, I turn around. I know it was coming. <laughs> he says, there's such a thing as please and thank you. And I said, yes, you're right, Zach. So I go around, can I please have this, this, and this? And thank you very, very much. <laughs> but he was like that. You know, it didn't matter where I was or what I was doing. He wasn't shy about setting his dad straight. And I needed setting straight quite a bit. And that was another question I asked God. I said, why would you take that, well, you know, him away from me, that he was my, uh, he'd watch over me, you know, and make me uh, look a lot better than I really was. Bishop Thomas Rockwood and many others spent the afternoon and evening comforting the Snar family. His friends call it a senseless crime without a motive, and that for them is the hardest to take. How do you react to someone that you've grown up with dying? I, there's nothing you can say or do. I just want to know why. News reports highlighted the random nature of the crime. There was speculation that the 19-year-old shooter just wanted to see somebody die. The community struggled to make sense of the shooting. Keith Stevens was the lead detective on the case. A lot of times when a shooting first happens, the media and, and other people, it's, it's a very hot topic for a minute, and then people go about their business and it just starts to dissipate and people start to forget about it. A lot of times 
some of the story comes up later and, oh, well, that's why that guy got shot. He's uh, he's a dirty so-and-so. And then people kind of justify it. This circumstance were two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. They were here enjoying themselves, good, clean, wholesome kids. Every parent's nightmare. Every parent's nightmare. So that's where I think that really sent those shockwaves out. Uh, 25 years ago, it still hit me like a ton of bricks, you know. John Craigle was Zach's photography teacher at Highland High School. When you hear, you know, I knew that somebody had been killed. You hear his name and said, and the person who died was, and then this bombshell gets dropped on you. Some of the kids there, you know, those kids who knew him were just shell-shocked. I mean, there were kids crying in the halls, and it would come out of nowhere. It's just like like me right now, you know. It would come out of nowhere. You realized what we've what we've lost and how how much we were going to miss him. Zach, as John remembers, loved nature shots. Mountains, flowers, the intricacies of tree roots. You know, so when I when I heard he was taking pictures of the moon the night he was killed, uh, it made sense. We had actually gone over that in class. Zach had even joined a trip John organized for a small group of students to go to Europe that summer for sightseeing and photography. So John was able to get to know him more as a person. And I said, this is a kid that I really, I really thought a lot of. I knew I could count on him. I knew he could help other people, you know, without my asking him to. You know, he was just that kind of a guy. Sydney said it was easy for people to see themselves or their child in her brother's place. You know, you've got this nice kid who something so horrible happened to, and it was just such a random act of violence that I think a lot of people were like, that could have happened to us. That could have been anyone. Why him? Back in the 90s, random shootings were rare. It was a time when many people had no experience with that particular kind of terror. And it was one of those things where people were saying, hold your children close tonight and just be grateful. The family was not able to see Zach's body right away because it was considered evidence in the criminal case. More than a week after his death, they were allowed to prepare him for a funeral. That was really hard. Um... I remember the coroner telling us not to touch his head because it was unstable with the how the bullet had entered and exited the body. They kept saying, just don't touch the head because it, it's too fragile. And I remember just being like horrified by that. I remember going to pick out the casket and they had some like pink caskets and there was one with like an animal print and I remember thinking how Zach would think that was funny and I said to my mom oh my gosh Zach would just die if we if we pick this one and I remember my mom saying do you want to rephrase that and it was not funny and it was suddenly where I and I just burst into tears because you know I had said something so stupid and like, and it was just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I just said that. And that's, that's how sensitive everyone was at that time, was just 
You know, everyone was walking on eggshells around us. We were walking on eggshells around each other. Everything was painful. In addition to their own grief, Sydney says they had to face many friends and neighbors, also trying to come to grips with the shocking nature of the crime. The night before the funeral, we had a viewing, and I mean, it ended up being hours and hours and hours long, and I remember just having to comfort everyone else. Like, it was just, it was just such a heavy load for my little family to, to carry. It was a bonding like this neighborhood has never seen before. 1,500 people, some who didn't even know Zachary Snar, packed into the Edgemont LDS Ward House to pay tribute to what they call a remarkable family and a remarkable gifted young man whose life was wasted in a senseless shooting. I look so forward to embracing my brother. <laughs> I look forward to the resurrection of the just. It'll be a tremendous day for my whole family. We love you all so much. Even those that we don't know, we love you. We love you so much. You have held us together these many days that have been so hard on us. Just a day after the shootings, police arrested the killer. He was only a few months older than Yvette and Zach. He confessed to the crime in a police interview, which I'll share with you in another episode. But at the time, the Snars could only piece together his motives from what they gathered in news reports. They were left with no satisfying answers as to why anyone would want to take Zach's life. Under pressure from the media, the Snars agreed to hold a press conference. Three days after Zach was killed, all five of them squeezed together on one sofa, their arms wrapped around one another but they could not protect each other from the grief and anger that would destroy the life they knew. If he had to die, I wished it would have been an accident because it would have been a lot easier to accept than this. I will never understand what happened to him. It was, it was brutal, it was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it. I will never accept it. This man has taken so much away from us. We can't even call him a person. I mean, he's an animal. George? Hi, George. How are you? I'm good. It's so good to hear from you. I've wondered, I've been wondering if you got your vaccine yet. Sai Snar wasn't sure she'd ever know the kind of joy that she took for granted before Zach was killed. Then two and a half years ago, she received a letter that changed everything. And it led to these Monday morning phone calls that she waits for with nervous anticipation. But oh, I was going to tell you, I got, I got an invitation to your niece's wedding. What a gorgeous couple. Wow. Yeah, we're, we're going to go. That's so nice of them. We're, we're excited. Have you heard anything about when visitation's going to open up down there, if it is, or when? She asks him if he's getting her letters. She hopes to get another from him. She advises him to spend as much time in the sunshine as possible. She talks about her wilting wildflowers, 
her affection for her grandchildren, and an upcoming trip. But yeah, you should, I hope you get it today. I did write to you. I waited till after Easter Sunday because we went with Sid's family to Bear Lake. We had just the best time. We took our bikes, went bike riding and... The man on the other end of the line is both the reason her life was nearly consumed by anger and the reason she's found peace. His name is Jorge Benvenuto, although friends and family call him George. You should be getting it. I'm so glad you called. It's so great to hear from you. He's calling from the Central Utah Correctional Facility. Oh, I will, and you'll hear all about it, too. I'll tell you all about it for sure. And he's the man who murdered her son. Thanks. Thanks for calling. Love you. Bye. These days, we've become all too familiar with stories about random acts of violence. Before we've even had the chance to process one terrible story, another more shocking crime appears in our newsfeed. We tend to focus on the part that terrifies us. As a crime reporter, I did just that on a daily basis. I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. This is the story of how they are remade. Next time on The Letter. There's no reason I should be here. He reloaded his gun and aimed at my head to make sure I died. The story of Yvette Rodier, The Survivor. Hi, I'm producer Andrea Smartin, dropping in to let you know about some bonus content. This week, we're offering up an inside look into how Amy found out about this story and why she wanted to share it. You can get all the bonus content and some great things we couldn't fit into the main story by subscribing to Lemonada Premium. You can subscribe right now in the Apple Podcast app by clicking on our podcast logo and then click the subscribe button. The letter is researched and reported by me, Amy Donaldson. It's written by myself and Andrea Smartin, who is also responsible for production and sound design. Mixing by Trent Sell. Special thanks to Nina Ernest, Becky Bruce, Kellyanne Halverson, Ryan Meeks, Josh Tilton, Ben Kiebrick, and Dave Colley. Main musical score composed by Allison Layton Brown. With KSL Podcast executive producer Cheryl Worsley. For Lemonada Media, executive producers Jessica Cordova-Kramer and Stephanie Whittleswax. And executive producers Paul Anderson and Nick Pinella with Workhouse Media. If you like our show, please give us a rating and a review. It helps people find us. Follow us at theletterpodcast.com and on social at The Letter Podcast. The Letter is produced by KSL Podcasts and Lemonada Media in association with Workhouse Media.